Hi everyone, I hope you're all keeping well this week, wherever you are. This week I had the honour of chatting with Professor Patrick Wallace of the London School of Economics. Patrick is widely published across economic history journals and history journals. He's one of the editors of the Economic History Review and has sat on the editorial boards of the other major economic history journals. He's recently co-edited a book with Martin Prack at the University of Utrecht called Apprenticeship in Early Modern Europe and that was released in November 2019 from Cambridge University Press. Today we go back to some of Patrick's earlier work, uh, which appropriately for 2020 looks at plagues, pandemics, uh, epidemics, government response and private uh, and personal responsibility and how the views of societies have evolved over time with respect to these. So we'll just go through the three articles as usual. First one is called Plagues, Mortality and the Place of Medicine in Early Modern England, written in the English Historical Review and that was out in 2006. The second one is called a Dreadful Heritage, Interpreting Epidemic Disease at Eme between 1666 and the year 2000. And that was published in the History Workshop Journal in 2006. The final paper was co-authored with Brigitte Nerlich, and that was called Disease Metaphors in New Epidemics, the UK Media Framing of the 2003 SARS Epidemic, and that's in Social Science and Medicine in 2005. So with all of these usual footnotes out of the way, I hope our chat today puts some of the things that we've experienced in 2020 in perspective, and take care of yourselves, and we'll talk in two weeks. So, Patrick, thank you very much for agreeing to do this with us today. Just before we begin, can I ask you to tell me how you got into economic history? Thanks for inviting me, Sean. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have a chat with you. I had a really kind of roundabout route into economic history. I don't think I would recommend that route to anyone who wants to be an economic historian, but it was it was really good for me. So I went through um, as a straight historian, as an undergraduate, as a graduate student, and then actually was incredibly lucky and got a job as a historian in the University of Nottingham. And it was a, re- a really interesting job with a, a, a range of different people. And I was doing what I thought was kind of really interesting kind of work in cultural and social history. And actually, it's what we're going to talk about a bit later today, I think. But I started to kind of find it unsatisfying. And I started to really feel that the kinds of quality of arguments that you got in cultural history particularly, just didn't nail down debates, right? We couldn't really test and prove things. So I was getting a bit disaffected. I was getting a bit tired of this kind of work. And at the same time, I was becoming more aware of work in economic history, largely because I was working as well on guilds and and the nature of of pre-modern work. And I just really got excited about the kind of social science method, which had been something that was entirely missing from my training as an undergraduate. And I'd I'd seen at Oxford that I'd taken the the Masters in Economic and Social History in Oxford. And anyone who's taught by Avner Offer gets to see this method and starts to understand kind of why it can be exciting. But then it was only really after a few years of and of plowing on this furrow of, of thinking about representations, thinking about ideas, that I started to really feel like, well, if I'm doing history, I want to be able to do something a bit more solid. I want to at least be able to reject some things, even if I can't prove them to a great, a great deal of satisfaction. So I became an economic historian intellectually at that point, a few years after kind of starting work as a, as a lecturer in history, and then 
having become exposed more and more to the kind of vision of what it was. So that's what drew me in. And I think, oddly, it was almost once I got the job at LSE, I started to really understand how big and important it was and started to really engage with those questions. So I've, I've had this incredibly positive experience of falling into a field, being drawn into a field by the ideas, being incredibly fortunate in getting the right job, and then having the chance to start to think quite hard over the last kind of 15, 20 years about what that really means and what the big questions in economic history are. And when you made this Damascene turn towards economic history, was there a, a book or a paper along the way that, that might have just inspired you? Oh, there was. I mean, it was, I was incredibly fortunate. So Larry Epstein published a paper in 1998 on craft skills and apprenticeship and technological change. And this was, uh, this was probably for me the key paper because it was just this incredibly provocative strong set of statements that really try to build an argument about a major institution. It tries to explain, like, why do guilds survive? Can they be positive? And, and Larry comes up with a, a really kind of interesting hypothesis that guilds are there to support training, to create human capital, that they spread technology across Europe. And that so rather than being rent-seeking and awful, they were actually good. And the funny thing about this was that I found it, I totally disagreed with the um, interpretation of apprenticeship, but I really loved the way he built the argument. And then I met him a bit and we talked through it. And, you know, oddly, I spent the first kind of five, 10 years of my time at LSE largely working on ways that refute the paper. But it was that paper that made me think this really, really matters. We can really do something exciting historically in this kind of mode of analysis. So it was this kind of like this, just this moment of seeing economic historians really taking things rigorously. And I think that was something that I felt I wasn't seeing as much in the kinds of work that, that I was engaging with. And so it was Larry, it was completely down to Larry. Just for the listeners, would you mind just explaining what a guild is? Because we don't hear that word that often anymore. Sorry, yes. Craft guilds, which is the type of organisation we're, we're talking about here, are collectives um, of artisans and traders that exist around the world, but in Europe are particularly associated with towns and some areas of the country. And what they tend to be are groups, say, of a particular trade, say maybe the butchers or the tailors, and they gain control of work in that sector in a particular urban centre. So to work as a tailor, you have to be a member of the tailor's guild. To work as a shoemaker, you have to be a member of the shoemaker's guild. Now, they only work over limited areas. So they're a bit different to modern professions, which tend to kind of map over national boundaries. But within those areas, they, they have some, some important powers. They regulate quality, they oversee training in some, to some extent. And ultimately, the key thing is this, this, this monopolistic power. Um, so, you know, they have, a, they have a bad rep, and they have a bad rep because they're exactly the opposite of everything that um, kind of standard economics from Adam Smith onwards has thought um, should be happening in, in a local economy, right? And Smith himself hated them. Well, you know, he identifies these as, as, as groups that are basically out there to rent-seek. They're going to be pushing up prices, they're going to be excluding competition, you know, suppressing innovation. And it's a line of argument, it's a debate that's continued since then. I say debate. I think mostly, apart from antiquarians, most economic historians thought that guilds were basically bad until a group in the 1990s, and Larry was a very leading person among this, started to think about alternative, more positive hypotheses. And the debate continued. I mean, Sheila Ogilvie has written a very big book recently on the economics of uh, pre-modern guilds, which really pushes for the, the standard account in that sense, that they are essentially 
burdens, dead weights upon um, urban economies. So they're kind of a contested but very important institution that, that lasts for you know, um, almost a millennia, really, until the 18th, late 18th, 19th century. We're going to talk today about plagues and pandemics and their perceptions yeah. and epidemics and whatnot. Could we just provide some simple definition of a plague and can we lay down the basic? Oh, I mean, the question of what plagues is, is one that I find incredibly intriguing. And it's something that's changed. So I think we, we still, I think, rightly think of plague as essentially an outbreak of Yersinia pestis, a bubonic plague. This is what historians have been looking for through the 20th century. I say the 20th century because until the 1890s, we didn't know, didn't have an identifiable cause, an agent for plague. So this whole kind of plague model that we have is one that's emerged after the 1890s with the development of bacteriological science. So that's kind of what we're looking for when we think about plague. But it's also something that's changed. You know, 25, 30 years ago, when we were working on plagues, one of the big questions was, was it bubonic plague or was it something else? You know, people spent a lot of effort trying to work out what shape of mortality curve might be, which disease and so on. And I think one of the exciting things actually is that recent work on DNA and particularly um, DNA extracted from teeth and other archaeological remains has started to kind of be able to model and map um, the actual diffusion and existence of different strands of bubonic plague across Europe. So I think now we're, we're suddenly confident for the first time that plague was plague. And that's also raised a whole bunch of other questions about, which we'll come to later, about what's going on here. But I mean, a plague is not an epidemic. And you, you asked, well, what's an epidemic? I certainly work with a very standard definition that it's any outbreak of a disease that is in excess of normal levels of that disease. Now, how big an excess? Well, that, that's open for debate. And how much that holds for different settings is, is also open to question. So when we think about pre-modern plagues, medieval plagues, we tend to be looking at really big spikes um, in mortality particularly. And that's because that's the only way we can observe them. Nowadays, well, an epidemic could theoretically be a, a very small number of cases of a disease which was not present before. And so in the early days of coronavirus, for example, an epidemic could be a handful of cases appearing in England or Sweden or wherever you are. Pandemic is simply a, a more globalised, more extensive collection of epidemics that are linked. So rather than a single outbreak, a pandemic spreads across multiple places, multiple regions. It was kind of fun that there were different people deciding on when you declare a pandemic, but now this is something that there are institutions to say, that's a pandemic. But I mean, ultimately, these are very subjective and nowadays increasingly political definitions. But I think luckily as historians, we're largely able to focus in on what are quite substantial, we're required to focus in on what are quite substantial increases in cases or particularly mortality when we think about this. And then when we learned about plagues in school, the big one we had always was the Black Death. And then I remember Napoleon carrying out a soldier in Egypt 500 years later. I just wondered if you could go through some of like the top three, the best of, if you were going to recommend an album of plagues. What would be the plagues that really stand out in the last millennium in terms of consequences, death rates, economic shock, demographic shock? Okay, that's a really interesting question. I mean, it's a, it's a hard one. So if I had to pick my top three, and, and I'm restricting myself to this millennium, so we're going to lose the Roman plagues, right? That's, which is, would you have a good claim? I think your teachers were, were right. 1348, the Black Death, that is the 
major shock, at least in Eurasian history. And it's a shock in part because it, it's the start of a new regime. Hundreds of years where plague is, is now a, a repeated visitor, even a sustained part of the European disease mix. And that's one of the areas where DNA is changing our understanding. So for me, the Black Death, it's just, it's got to be up there. It's kind of number one, right? Nothing else kills that many people in Europe in such a short amount of time. How many people? I mean, it's all disputed. It's very, very um, tricky estimates, but 30 to 50% of the population is the normal range for Europe. Wow. Which is, it, it's very different because when we talk about later outbreaks, we're largely talking about very high mortality in a particular city or a region, which might reach 30 to 50%. But to think about that mapped fairly consistently across much of a continent, that's a really different order of magnitude. I say that that's big. I mean, the really big epidemics are the ones that affect the Americas after with the Columbian Exchange. I mean, there people are talking perhaps of mortality rates up to 90%. Here we, we, we've got a real problem, right? Because we don't know how many people were there before. So it's a fascinating debate which turns on really estimates of how many people could have been, what's the carrying capacity of, of pre-Columbian America, and then what kinds of population levels do you see thereafter. But there's an extensive debate about what are called virgin soil epidemics. And this is a, this is a kind of concept introduced and popularized really by um, J.L. McNeil and Alfred Crosby in their kind of work on this. And those really tell a, a dramatic story about how a population that is entirely unprepared for a disease can experience enormous mortality on its first encounter. And that, that then in some ways changes, entirely changes the trajectory of, of societies in the Americas. So let me call those two, right? One and two, probably in, in equally rated. In the second case, we're not talking about the same plague, are we? We're talking there about smallpox, measles, of an unspecified variety of diseases that are commonplace in, in Europe and Eurasia, but are at that stage unknown in the Americas. The challenge in the Americas is obviously these are diseases that are familiar to people in childhood, can be overcome quite comfortably in childhood, but are um, very, very risky among adults. That was number two. That was number two, right? So number three is tricky, but I think if I had to pick one for number three, it would probably be the cholera epidemics in the 19th century. And that's not because of mortality. Mortality is substantial, but nowhere near the same scale of the mortality that we see in, in the plagues. But they seem to me to be really important because they're key moments in motivating developments in public health and urban infrastructure that really have incredible kind of positive spillovers. You know, we get clean water. That really matters. Yeah. Um, we get kind of um, sewerage. These things really matter. And these are in some ways, kind of the diseases that help shape the modern public health and urban environment that allows us to have these kind of very long lives that we're able to have now. So, that, so if I had to think about epidemics, those would be my top three. What we rarely hear about them, Patrick, even, even now, even about the Spanish flu, is how they end. We hear about the death rates of the Spanish flu and we hear about the, the numbers, just like we've talked about with the plague. How do they generally end? Unfortunately, they generally end when the disease ends. It's not human action, right? Um, in most cases, these peter out because enough people have been infected that uh, we acquire some form of herd immunity. They peter out because the disease itself evolves into something which is either less sustainable in human populations or reservoirs that have been sustaining a disease between epidemics disappear. And this is actually, in that sense, um, 
perhaps the more depressing part of all the histories of epidemics that we wrestle with. One of the messages that's coming out of recent work on, on DNA is that it doesn't look like human actions were necessarily that important. What really matters are environmental changes, changes in reservoirs, changes in host animals that sustain or allow strands of plague to die out. I think this is to me one of the kind of like really exciting areas of, of history is, is the connections between humans and the environment and how that's changed and taking some of the agency away from humans, right? We've uh, got a long and very detailed history of quarantine, a long and detailed history of a whole variety of kind of interventions against epidemics, but it's entirely possible that plague disappears because of something that's to do with plague, not with human action. You've talked a lot about this epidemic in 1665. You've written about it. What were the perceptions by that point on how best to treat uh, a plague, how, how best to behave as a population in order to reduce its disastrous effects? So, so, so um, by 1665, you've got to think about Europe as a society that's incredibly experienced with plague. 300 years of continual sequence of epidemics. You know, these, these, these people are very familiar with the disease and have thought really hard about it. But what they haven't got is a consensus. There's continued debate and dispute really running on until the 19th century about whether or not plague is caused by some kind of environmental problem or whether, on the other hand, it could be contagious between people. There's a lot of people still who think this is simply an act of God, divine arrows of retribution upon the sinners. Right? You know? And London and most of Europe has a lot of sinners in 1665, right? Interestingly, there's no consensus around how it spread, and that also means there's no consensus on how to act and how to treat it. There's a policy consensus. You know, governments have decided that there are some actions that it's worth doing. And, you know, 40, 50 years before 1665, there's a clear set of rules in place about what you do to isolate houses, isolate individuals. You know, we've got systems of, of pest houses where people who are infected by plague will be shipped off to be isolated. We've got systems where houses will be locked up. That, that famous image of a red cross painted on the door and someone standing outside with a staff, that is very much of this period. But... This is all contested. And it's contested because it's really easy to make arguments against simple ideas of contagion. It's really also easy to make arguments against simple ideas that this is about bad air. You know, this bad air, why isn't everyone sick? If yeah. it's contagious, well, you know, I met Sean, I didn't get sick. You know, all of these kind of, um, these, the probabilistic thinking that we're used to is not something that, that, that is, is, is really part of medical debate at this point. So you know, you've got to think about plague as this incredibly challenging thing, that there are some rules of thumb to deal with, but open always for dispute. It's like the causes of economic growth. Well, we kind of think we know the answer, but actually there's at least kind of like five economists, five different views, right? In 1665, during that epidemic, who generally survived in terms of economic status and uh, who generally didn't? So um, early modern plagues are pretty depressing events. Um, the burden of the disease is borne increasingly by the poor over time. And the burden of the, burden of the economic shock is particularly heavy for the poor. So if we think about how people are making a living in pre-modern Europe, there's a large number of people who are essentially itinerant laborers, who are casual workers. And for these people, the kind of pre-modern lockdown is catastrophic. 
you know, they're thrown onto charity, onto poor relief, and that is simply not available in very large quantities. And for this reason, actually, kind of plague responses, the key, the key challenge for a, a town or a city that wants to control plague is logistical. It's food. It's keeping the poor in order that are the kind of big issues. Well, those people, the wealthy, you know, capitalists, well, they tend to be pretty okay. Um, you get a massive shock to the kind of urban middling sorts, um, people who are living by manufacturing or trade, but they're most able to recover this because recover from this. It's, it's really the poor who suffer. And often by the 17th century, it's the poor who are more heavily affected by the disease as well because it's becoming increasingly concentrated in poorer areas. And they can't leave as easily as the wealthy can. No, exactly. So, you know, the best thing you can do in plague is go, right? Get somewhere else. And uh, if you're poor, you're less likely to have somewhere to go to. You won't have a country house. You won't have relatives who are rich enough to take you in. And so you're more, more likely to be stuck. And that's, that's, that's hugely problematic. And in most developed societies today, we kind of praise the work the doctors do on the front line of fighting the COVID-19 pandemic. I want to go back to your paper about 1665 and talk about the medical profession then and the economic and personal incentives uh, facing them. What was the public's expectations surrounding the medical profession? Uh, should they stay or should they go? And was there a stigma attached? This is it's a really interesting question. You know, what, are, what responsibilities come with different types of work? So my reading of the 17th century, and this is an area of discussion, is that the vast majority of people had fairly low expectations about medical practitioners. They had low expectations for, for good reasons. Like doctors didn't have a cure. Everyone knew that. Um, doctors also were largely working with the middle class or rich. So the very the large majority of the population didn't engage with doctors. You know, they couldn't. There was no money to pay for them. And so in that sense, medicine was kind of a, a much more, much more of a lux luxury good, a discretionary good than we think of it now. So the kind of, you know, the kind of expectations that we've, we've developed in the 19th and 20th century, they come with fairly widespread or universal healthcare. And, these, and they also come with um, an idea that healthcare can at least sustain life, even if it can't treat a particular illness. It can alleviate our symptoms. It can reduce pain. You go back to the 17th century and that's just not, not the case. So for most people, the expectation is fairly low. But on the other hand, it's still possible for an epidemic to make a doctor a hero. Yeah. It's still possible to show that you're something special by sticking it out by offering your services, particularly helping the poor. And maybe, just maybe, you can claim that, well, okay, most of my colleagues don't know how to treat um, play, but I, I have the right thing in this little bottle, right? And given that identifying a, a therapy that works is a pretty hard thing in a modern clinical setting, it's also something that you can probably get quite convincing evidence that maybe, maybe they took it and they didn't die because they had my medicine. So we get this kind of, this split between an, an everyday acceptance that, well, most doctors, they don't have a duty to the community. They can go, but also a sense that, well, you know, this is a place where you could be a hero. And it's interesting. I think heroism is one of the, the tropes, one of the ideas today around medicine. We've clapped the NHS in Britain. I know there's been other celebrations around the world. Definitely a sense that, right, there is something beyond the call of everyday duty and the kind of risks that engaging with an epidemic involves. 
It's just that the needle, in some senses, on where that is, has shifted from the 17th century through to the 20th. You talked already about guilds, Patrick, a little bit. Mm. We talk about the governance structure for the doctors at that time, namely the College of Physicians, and how it affected uh, medical practitioners' choices inside and outside uh, the system. And outside here, we can think of the irregulars or, or charlatans or, or good-willed helpers or, or whatever you want to call them. This is a classic kind of political economy problem, right? We have in the 17th century, from the early 16th century onwards, we have a, what is now the Royal College of Physicians in England and is a national body. But at that point was just the College of Physicians. They haven't got the Royal. Um, but they did have a monopoly on medical practice in London and a few miles around. And they were a group of graduates, right? They defined themselves by their qualifications. They were exclusive. There weren't many of them. There were really far too few to treat a city which is by this point already um, really quite large. So they, they have a monopoly and they fight quite vigorously to enforce it. Punishing people who offer medical services, punishing quacks, punishing irregulars. They define what is a quack. They define what is an irregular. Basically by, you're not in my club, you are irregular. Uh, this is a, a very much a guild of doctors who are driven to defend their own professional positions by using these privileges, privileges that they've obtained from the crown. So this is a classic kind of case of identifying and isolating an area, getting legal powers to, to preserve it, and then using that to defend one's own preserve in some ways. The reputational capital that irregulars would have grown during and after epidemic rich opportunities. Do we know anything about the fees and the wages of the well, doctors who would have stayed behind at that time? I'm thinking that wages or fees would have been extortionate if they could have been charged or afforded. No, unfortunately, we don't know anything about this. It's one of those it's incredibly, the economic history of health is largely unwritten, and it's incredibly rare to get this kind of information. One of the, the features of how medicine's organized in this period is actually that quite a, lot of, quite a lot of fees are discretionary. They might be fees for service. It would be very hard to observe this. I see no doubt that kind of the reputation, reputational effect from being one of the plague heroes, that paid off, you know, that built a, a practice. How much people were able to ratchet up their the prices is unclear. And at the time, there was also kind of like a strong charitable in, imperative. This is a very Christian society. So anyone who is very obviously kind of extorting extorting fees from their customers, well, that, that runs against what you're really meant to be doing at this stage in in a crisis, in a market economy, full stop in, in early modern terms. So I'm not sure how much flexibility there would have been. Now we're going to turn to something you wrote about, an earlier self-imposed lockdown. Can we talk about what is, first of all, believed to have happened in the village of Eam in 1665 in Derbyshire? So Eam is um, one of the kind of great stories of pre-modern epidemic history in Britain. It's, really, it's odd that it became a, a great story because it's a small village in Derbyshire. It's really isolated. You can journey there now. It's a great tourist site. And it's hidden up a valley. It's a, it was a mining village. And in 1666, it um, starts to see some plague deaths. And in the end, over the next year or so, essentially, it sees a very large number of deaths. Exactly how many? We're not sure. Between a third and a half of the village. It depends on how you define the village's population. But it's a, a severe outbreak. And the distinctive thing is that that outbreak is isolated. So it doesn't spread to the surrounding villages. We also have for Eam, we have some letters 
that survived from the vicar of the parish, uh, William Montbesson, which report a little bit about the what a truly awful experience. You know, he's clearly savagely affected by the, the deaths. He describes this Golgotha, this kind of place of suffering. Um, but we don't know very much more than that. And the story goes, the story that's built up around this is that the village isolated itself, that somehow they decided that they should keep everyone within the bounds of the village, no one should go out, and that was in order to protect the, the area. And in that sense, the isolation of the village works. But it's this claim, this, this story that the village was affected by plague, kept itself in a quarantine and then saved, saved the county, saved the north, perhaps. That is the kind of roots of the traditional story. That's the core of the traditional story. When you looked at this question, what differed in the quality of accounts from, say, the Black Death, uh, which was 300 years earlier? Were the records kept by administrators or accounts or was it folklore? The thing that struck me, so when I started working on Eam, I was in Nottingham, which is nearby, and I thought, well, this will be fun, right? We've got a famous epidemic in a local village. I can, I can try and work out what was going on, write some kind of history of epidemic response. And I suppose when I started, I was thinking about, well, okay, let's look at the policy, let's look at control, maybe let's think about morality, because that's that's what I've been working on. So I went to start reading, and you read back through the histories of the plague of Eam, and they get smaller and smaller as you get closer and closer, until you realise that there's this kind of, it's almost like a snowball, where it got bigger and bigger over time as people just added stuff into the history. You know, I wasn't the first person to observe this, other people had observed it, but the story of Eam was one that had been wonderfully elaborated, had kind of extra bits sewn onto, extra interpretations added, really decade by decade, century by century, from kind of mid-18th century onwards. The, The surprising thing here was there were almost no sources. There were a few letters which told you very little about what had actually happened. There was the record of burials, which told you that there was definitely an epidemic, but there was almost nothing else. And so this was actually really different to other epidemics of the 17th century, where in big cities you get quite good records. It was in that way more like the Black Death, because the Black Death was almost unknown until the 19th century, because people didn't write about it. You know, it was only really with the 19th century that historians started to realise that this this collection of, of plague outbreaks, this, this, these different fragments of evidence, actually represented a giant, coherent epidemic that affected the continent. So it was a really interesting kind of journey into how history was fabricated, and that was what actually surprised me about E. A yeah. lot of it's made up. Okay, so a lot of it's made up. Uh, we, it looked like a really beautiful village because I didn't want to turn people off going. It's a lovely place. You can walk through there. It's a really fantastic. The perceptions of the measures taken and the nature of the sacrifices made have changed over the centuries with this particular uh, epidemic. How so? This is what really struck me. When you start to read different versions of the history of the plague at Eam, it's really striking how different they become. And so you get kind of contests over who is the hero. Is it the Anglican vicar or is it the nonconformist Thomas Stanley? And and then there, there are all these kind of 20th century representations where suddenly it's the working class who are the hero, fighting up and saving the village against the uh, incompetent figurehead. So we get these kind of different versions. And then like over the over time, this has been deployed in different ways. So the kind of various earliest um, Representations, representations in print of Eam are in publications that are advocating for a cordon sanitaire. 
These are these are con- these are part of a public policy debate in the early 18th century, which is is prompted by an epidemic in Europe, in, in England, going well. Okay, what do we need to do? And so someone said, a very famous doctor writes a book, and they actually kind of identify Eames as an example of quite why a cordon sanitaire tech can work. Then in the 19th century, Eames completely different. Eames is now being used to offer a counterpoint to the disorder that has been seen in the streets in response to cholera regulations. Now we get Eames as this orderly society, which is a contrast to the disordered contemporary people's failings. In the 20th century, this Eames becomes a futile sacrifice. Gosh, they kept themselves all in there, but if only they'd known that it was the rats. It wasn't the people, it was the rats. And you get historians kind of writing about the tragic futility of this. So it's really striking because it's such a small, distinctive outbreak. And then to see it being used in so many different ways, it, it, it really is kind of like of all the histories I think I've ever read or written about, this is the one that really underlines how radically different our readings of, of events can be depending on where we're standing. Let's talk now about the reactions to epidemics and the media's role. How did the language differ? Because you've looked at one paper in particular uh, at the outbreak of SARS in the early mm. 21st century. How did the language differ between that and, say, um, AIDS, which had broken out 20 years earlier? Language, I found, I started to get really interested in, um, thanks to the work of a colleague, Brigitte Nerlich at Nottingham. And what she kind of started to make me think about is how it is that we talk about these diseases. So, I mean, you, you ask about AIDS and SARS, right? So AIDS, in the kind of publications in the 1980s, AIDS is very clearly being identified as a gay plague, as something which is the fault of the individual. You see kind of again and again in reports of that, of that period that it's something about the people that causes them to have AIDS whether it's their ethnicity, because there's also literature about immigrants, Haitians in America, whether it's their, uh, their, their moral f- lack of moral fibre, so the, the, the association with intravenous drug use. But again and again, there's a language of, of moral failings on the part of the person who's infected. SARS was really, really different. And we were actually, we had a really, really fun project where we were sitting there during the SARS epidemic, downloading the newspapers and trying to work out how how the media was talking about this disease. Um, But SARS, SARS was at least for the first few months of the epidemic in the British press, SARS was itself the killer. It was a beast. It was a monster. It was striking people down. So it was a really interesting contrast to how AIDS had always been described as something which was a feature of the person. So SARS was really different. And the thing that really made me start to think about how important this is, is that at the point at which the first few cases, there are only a handful of cases that reached the UK, at that stage where those first people were diagnosed, isolated in hospitals, Suddenly, it wasn't SARS that was the killer. Suddenly, SARS was the possession of these people. You can imagine, you kind of the brackets there, kind of these evil idiots, right? You know, it was the possession of the people who brought it in. Suddenly, it was gone. It was no longer the, the disease that was responsible for, for harming the world. Now it was the people who were responsible for importing it into our Virgin Isle. Yeah. This, this really, really struck me. So we were thinking about this and trying to understand it. To me, the kind of message here is, is, is about how these different ways of using words suggest different possibilities, right? And they tie in with different policy responses. You know, if, some, if it's someone's fault, 
Well, you can target that person. If it's the disease, then the people who have it are much less responsible for it. And you may really want to take care before you impose something too penal upon them to strip quarantines and so on. So that, that's the kind of line of analysis that we had. I mean, SARS was small, right, compared to COVID. But, you know, I think similar things were visible over this last epidemic. Yeah, and you wrote as well that SARS, Patrick, was, was difficult to classify uh, in terms of epidemic, pandemic, uh, location even. Mm. You've already talked a little bit about how it affected newspaper reports, but how specifically did it affect government policy? I mean, it's interesting. I'm not sure how much with SARS particularly, because the total number of cases was fairly small, how much these kind of played out into policy. We were interested in more kind of what's potential language opened up for more rigorous policy. If that disease had spread more generally, which luckily it didn't. So I'm not sure that... Um, this, this changed how governments reacted, but it certainly changed how, how responsibility was tied into the disease. So, I mean, SARS, after the initial spread from Guangdong, spread quite rapidly. It was in Canada. It was in Hong Kong. It was affecting relatively prosperous business travelers. It was affecting healthcare workers, particularly because it was very contagious in uh, clinical settings. And this really, in our reading of the, of the reportage upon this, seem to push against the idea that this should be seen as the responsibility of the people affected. And that then ties into the set of decisions about, well, you've got to quarantine these settings, but how do you treat them? How do you talk about uh, who's to blame? And those, those things, as I say, at that stage didn't really tie into uh, responsibility. I think you can see aspects of this in today's COVID epidemic. I mean, there's been obviously a very substantial debate about the way that, that, that President Trump has used the China virus language, which seems very much tied into distributing responsibility, assigning blame, and so exculpating one's own government from responsibility for particular policy decisions that have been made. So I think those are the kind of things that where, where it can really start to matter in terms of political discourse. At an individual level, language of blame and responsibility seem to me to matter a lot in terms of what kind of responsibility we put on people who are affected and who then infect others. Yeah. How strongly do we blame them? Do we tarnish them as being in some ways bad for their resp- responsibility? And here, the fact that uh, both SARS and COVID start out as essentially kind of the affluent diseases they're being spread by business people. You know, it's kind of people go skiing. How lovely, you know, and they spread the disease. So one of the consequences of this, I think, is that there's much less um, stigmatization, much less heavy-handed blaming of the people who are infected than there are in diseases which are more characteristically diseases of poverty. Those tend to have blame associated with them. SARS was described, but you mentioned it in your article as a kind of a jet bug. Mm. Before plagues were generally disproportionately affecting the poor. Can we talk a little bit about that? I think we should. And I think one of the things that's really struck me over the last six months is the scale of intervention that governments have been willing to make on the West to soften and modify the economic and social impact of what's been an enormous public health effort, unprecedented public health effort. I am not confident that that would have been the case um, or it would have been, wouldn't have been softened, wouldn't have been adjusted in that way for previous epidemics where, where diseases start to get identified with the poor. Interventions tend to be much more heavy-handed, militaristic. Um, if you read histories of 19th century cholera pandemics and the kind of controls that are imposed upon those, 
there's very little gentleness around them. There's quite a lot of, of harsh disciplinary interventions, kind of militarized interventions in some senses. And that, that contrast, I think, does reflect who's been affected. The fact that, that the current epidemic is, or at least started out as being much as being fairly widely distributed. Subsequently, in, in many parts of, of the developed world, become concentrated among poorer groups, of, uh, among minority populations, and we've become aware that those groups are often suffering more intensely. But the initial policy response saw this as a very generalized disease that affected people like us in terms of the policy perspective. And I think that that does shape the kinds of response that we see. And in the, perhaps the kinds of offsets that are introduced to, to make accepting the policies more acceptable, really. It's a hard one to do, and I mean, we'll be writing the histories of this for quite a long time, but I think the way that we reacted to COVID does, definitely, does seem to me to respond to the kind of line of access that it had into Western societies particularly. And we'll see, that may change, obviously. I was just wondering before we wrap it up, is there anything you're working on now? Because I've taken you on a digression today. You're not. You're not <laughs> yeah, this, uh, is, this is a journey through my early work, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, nowadays, the thing that I'm mostly interested in is I'm still thinking about apprenticeship, but trying to finish up, trying to write a book really on apprenticeship and human capital and to try and understand the system as it existed in Britain before the Industrial Revolution. So uh, I published a book, uh, an edited collection with Martin Prack on apprenticeship in early modern Europe last year with Cambridge. And I'm hoping, you know, fingers crossed that at some point I'll actually manage to finish my own more detailed study on Britain and try and answer that kind of, some of the question uh, that's been coming up very much recently about what these institutions of training could or couldn't have contributed to to Britain's precocious industrialization. And can you give us a hint? I, I, I suppose I'm somewhat pessimistic, actually. I think that um, apprenticeship to me is a European asset. The formalization of training, that matters. And I think that there's, there's really something in the contrast that uh, Mokir et al. draw between Europe and Asia on that sense. But it is a European asset, so I'm not sure that it's a particularly good explanation for why Britain diverges from France, say, or Italy. Um, to me, that's much harder to answer. I don't think we see the roots of it in, in training institutions, at least. Patrick, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this.